Welcome back, Cake Nation, and thanks for tuning in to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today is the second episode of the F Word miniseries. Folks, I have to say that I am very, very excited to have a super sweet guest on the show with me today. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of California, Irvine. Her doctorate degree from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, was a postdoctoral scholar at Harvard University, and is now an associate professor of chemistry at Emory University. Can you guess who it is? Cake Nation, I am privileged and delighted to welcome Dr. Jen Heemstra on the show. The loudest, the loudest of shout outs to the American Chemical Society for hosting conferences that bring amazing scientists together. We are both currently at the Fall 2019 National Meeting, which is why recording this episode was even possible. I feel like I just need to mic drop and leave because there's nothing I can say that would possibly live up to that introduction. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me to chat today. Like, how's thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, it is so much fun to finally meet you in person. So exciting. How has San Diego been? It's been amazing. It's been a whirlwind, but um, I think this is like by far my favorite ACS site because, right? Like, I get to go for a run along the ocean, yeah. and then there's all these great restaurants mm-hmm. and. Everything is close together, and you get to see tons and tons of people that mm-hmm. you know, and you just pass people on the street and get to say hi. And um, and that's really, I think, a lot of the fun of the ACS meeting is to, to see the people that you wouldn't necessarily see at the other conferences and meetings that you go to. So yeah, so I'm having a blast. I'm only here a short time, but it's like jam-packed, living it to the fullest. So. We're so excited to have you. So excited. <laughs> I'm so excited this worked out to meet up. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Well, this is awesome. Okay, so, from my understanding, um, your lab focuses on biomolecules, uh, Mm -hmm. namely self-assembly properties of nucleic acids, which admittedly is way beyond me, even though my background is in biochemistry. So could could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So our kind of lab motto or slogan is that biomolecules do amazing things, um, and we want to do amazing things with them. And so really our research is founded on this idea that uh, nature and evolution have delivered to us this set of molecules that just have absolutely exquisite properties. You know, when we think about what nucleic acids are able to do on a molecular recognition and self-assembly standpoint, the idea that you can have two molecules that you know you throw into a solution with billions of other nearly identical molecules, and your two molecules are going to find each other and bind to one another selectively and with very high fidelity. Um, that's absolutely awe-inspiring. Um, and, and the fact that it's so easy to design and engineer those systems is, is really remarkable. And, and you can do that to a large extent with proteins as well, which we're also starting to get into more and more now. And so um, our viewpoint on the field is that you know, it's really amazing what biomolecules do in nature, and we we care about what they do in nature because we want to understand that. Um, but we're not necessarily primarily driven by understanding what they do in nature. Like we, we want to learn about that and where there are interesting places where we can learn new things. We're excited to do that. Um, but even more so, our focus is on on thinking about okay, how can we take these properties that these molecules have, um, and then look outward and say, where is there an unmet need in 
the environment, in medicine and health, in research tools, um, where, where is there something that we need to do? And we think that we can address that unmet need using these properties of biomolecules. You know, say using the ability of DNA aftermers to trap waterborne toxins, or uh, being able to engineer nucleic acids to create better clinical diagnostics for cancer, um, or being able to engineer other proteins in order to have new therapeutic approaches for organophosphate poisoning. Um, so it's really saying how can we how can we design systems that will uh, kind of solve real problems, um, but then also how can we learn more about biomolecules as we work with those systems. Wow. Mind is blown. Those are amazing things. And I work with amazing people, which is what makes my job so, so much fun. I would not be doing this job if it weren't the fact that I, I, I do none of what I just described. All of, that, um, all of the ideas, all of the experiments, it's, it's really driven by the students and postdocs in my lab. And that... I, I got in this job because I, I love science and I love chemistry and I still love science and I still love chemistry, but probably the reason why I stay is because it's just so much fun to work with mm -hmm. people who have such high capacity for curiosity, for creativity, mm -hmm. um, to drive our research, to make things happen, um, and, and yeah, that's, that's the real fun of this job. That's really sweet. Oh, that's great. Heart is full. Heart is full. So, so you are a pretty prominent presence on Twitter. And in addition to being an ardent mental health advocate for not only the students, but the faculty as well, you are also a champion for embracing failure, which is definitely a topic I want to hone in on because I think that it is is such a heavy conversation that most people tend to avoid. Like, I know I don't like talking about all the times that I mess up, which is like all the time, but I also know that failure is a key component to success. So something I wanted to chat about is this F word. How would you mm -hmm. define failure? That is a fantastic question. And actually something that we've thought a lot about in our education research of, you know, often we think failure you, we define it really narrowly, like it's it's literally getting you know an F on a test or something like that. Um, but where we've landed on it, um, and actually we want to explore even more so uh, through our research how students define failure, because that's what really matters, is it isn't so much what is objectively failing, but it's when do you feel like you failed. And, and that's the significant thing that really you know impacts how you how you move through life and how you make choices. Um, and, and so mostly where we've landed, at least for right now, is that failure is just not attaining an anticipated outcome. Mm -hmm. So if you anticipated getting an A in a class and you get an A minus, even though that's that's not failing, and a lot of people would look at that and say, "Wow, I would love to have that A minus." To you, that feels like a failure, and you need ways to cope with that um, as a failure. And and so that's that's where we've really uh, kind of decided to define it for right now. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, has there ever been a time when your efforts reached what society would consider a failure? Fortunately, I mean, I I feel like I failed a lot. Like. 
all the time, like every every day. In fact, <laughs> I was talking to a friend about this last night that I I, I kind of walk around and objectively I'm like, okay, well, like if I look from the outside, it seems like things are going pretty well. But then I just have this like vague sense that I'm just failing at every single thing all at once. Oh, um, no. And I think that's not true. And that's where you you know that's where you need someone to like sit across the table from you and be like, Jen, that's 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 ridiculous. Like you know like pull yourself out of that. You you can do better. Um, But um, yeah, but think about dead end. You know, I think it it really comes down to how, how we choose to define failure that in my book, there's, you know, there's only like one dead end and that's if a failure literally like ends your life. So, you know, if you're Alex Arnold, you know, I know you're really into climbing. I'm really into climbing. So (laughs) if you're you're Alex Arnold and you're free soloing El Cap, um, (laughs) then yeah, so failure in in a very real sense, you know, is a dead end. But, um, but really anything short of that, I think a failure is, is never a real dead end. It just, is something that triggers plan B. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And actually a great quote also from a climber that I love is that, you know, he said, there's no such thing as failure. There's just a baseline for trying again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so to me, that's how I've always seen it play out in my life is that something happens that I didn't anticipate. And for a moment you kind of feel like, oh, wow, what, what do I do now? You know, I had this plan. I had this path I thought I was walking on. And all of a sudden now there's, you know, like a wall in the way. Um, and for, for a second, you know, you, you have that feeling maybe of like hopelessness, like, okay, everything is lost. What am I going to do now? But, but really, I think that something that's really healthy, actually psychology tells us it's really healthy to do. Um, and, and this is what we want to help students do as well is to be able to say, okay, well, that, that is something I didn't anticipate happening, um, but now how do I, how do I pivot? What, mm-hmm. what is the plan B? How do I turn this into not a dead end mm-hmm. by seeing some other option? And, and, and actually, there's, um, I won't get really into it, but, um, but there's really fascinating psychology behind this with um, internal versus external locus of control. You know, it's like, right. are, are you happening to life or is life happening to you? Oh and so, um, you know, the external locus of control says, you know, life is happening to me. I can't really control it. Yeah, when there is a failure, that's something that life has, you know, brought to me and I am not in control of what happens next. I am, I'm just, I have to stand and wait at this dead end and, and wait for something to happen. Whereas the uh, internal locus of control says, okay, this thing happened, you know, maybe I controlled it, maybe I didn't, you know, you can't always control it, but it, it still holds on to the idea of, you know, but I still have a lot more control than I think, you know, I, I, I might not have been able to control what happened to me, but I can control how I respond to it. Right. And I can control whether I'm going to choose to stand hopelessly at this dead end or whether I'm mm-hmm. going to then start looking around for, okay, well, what is the next alternative path that I can take? Um, and, and it's really interesting how that then even ties into mental health and things mm-hmm. like depression. There's um, actually a pretty good link there between locus of control and um, susceptibility to depression. Um, and, and then that all ties back to processing failure. And so um, I, I'm really fascinated by all of that right now. Oh, that's exciting. That's all very exciting. Uh, to kind of run with the whole, okay, we'll trigger plan B, yeah, like idea. Has there ever then been a time where you believed that you failed miserably, but then it ended up being a really happy accident? What were some of those times? 
Um, there are definitely a lot of those. Um, <laughs> so many. <laughs> you know, I think one that, that really stood out is actually how we got into this field of doing education research in a way, um, or, or how we brought it to what it is right now in that, um, you know, this is something that sprang out of the, the professional development that we were doing in our lab because we just saw, you know, I, I started reading about some of the psychology behind uh, what's called implicit theory of intelligence or mindset and fear of failure and realized, okay, you know, we're working in a field where most of our experiments fail. And if we don't know how to process failure or even what I found more importantly is that it, it isn't even so much that, that failure makes you successful, it's being unafraid of failure that makes you more successful. So if you're afraid to fail, then you kind of fall into all of these traps that actually make you more likely to fail. Mm -hmm. But if you're able to kind of approach failure from a healthy mindset or healthy attitude, it actually leads you to make better choices in how you do things um, that then, in fact, make you less likely to fail. Mm -hmm. So being willing to fail actually makes you less likely to fail. Um, and so when I started realizing all of this about four years ago, I thought, oh my goodness, like I... I, I, you know, I can't not tell my group about this. You know, you talk about a lot of things we, we do because we think we should, but it's actually the things that are really motivating is where you're like, oh, I can't not do this. And mm -hmm. so, so I just stared at these data and the psychology and said, oh, you know, we can't not be looking at this in the context of how this impacts our research when we fail a lot in lab. And, and we know that how we approach failure is going to impact our productivity and our success. And so, yeah, so we started building that into the professional development of our lab. Then I thought, oh, my students in my undergrad classes need to hear about this. Um, and, you know, it kind of started as a simple plan. And then it was something that I was expanding out to become a little bit more elaborate. And I had the, there was a call for um, a really prestigious education research award. Um, and I was like, oh, I feel like I should apply for this. Some people encouraged me to apply for it. And I thought, well, what am I gonna write the application on? And, and at the moment, I was like, oh yeah, I'm really, really jazzed about this whole understanding of the psychology of failure and how I take this thing that we've been doing in our group and, and actually bring that into the classroom much, much more, especially in the context of some of these research-based undergrad classes where you know you can have experience fail and still get a really good grade in the class. Like what a cool opportunity and what a unique opportunity to be able to help undergraduate students build that kind of real life experience of, of resilience of, you know, yeah, sometimes things don't work and, and that's okay as long as you're, you know, actively troubleshooting it, um, you know, and working towards success, that's, you know, it isn't being successful on the first try that's going to make you successful. It's being able to um, troubleshoot and keep trying and seek out help and make smart choices and, um, you know, keep driving intelligently towards the best option. That's just gonna make you successful. Um, but yeah, anyhow, so I applied for this really prestigious education award. Um, and then in the process, a really long application process. So um, as I was waiting to hear back, I thought, well, I might as well just like start doing some of this stuff in my classes. And so I did, and I was having a blast. Um, and then I failed. I didn't even make the first cut for this award. Oh, no. So that was my failure. I was like, oh. Well, that's a bummer. Um, I was all excited and ramping up and thinking, okay, I'm gonna start doing this and then we'll get the money to start assessing it and it'll all be great. Um, but it was actually a really, really great failure because what happened is if I had just, if I gotten it, I would have just said, okay, cool. I'm gonna do this exactly according to plan or really close to according to plan. I will just, you know, 
hire postdocs now with this money and they'll assess these things that I'm doing in my class and it'll just be kind of this thing that's in my lab. Um, but because we didn't get it, it sent me back to the drawing board to think, well, well, okay, what, you know, you know, first I was like, well, okay, this just isn't happening now. What's the next thing I can apply for? You know, kind of that pivot of like, okay, well, that was a brick wall, but like, there's always, you know, some new opportunity. Um, and right about that time we moved, we found out we were moving to Emory University. And um, part of that move was to be able to do and explore really cool things like talking about failure as part of the professional development of your lab and, and having a really, really unique environment that would, um, support running and managing a lab the way that, and, and thinking about professional development um, the way that we were in our lab. Um, and also when you move, you like get startup funds again, which is amazing. And, and you know, we kind of thought, okay, well, we really need to buy like HPLCs and you know, <laughs> things like the plate readers and all of that. Like that's really, really important. Um, but also if you're gonna move, it's a lot of work to move and you, you really wanna do some stuff that some new stuff that is super fun. And so we're certainly doing that on the chemistry side. We had a few projects that we were like, oh, we really, really want to do these and we don't have money for them yet. So like, let's let's launch these with our startup funds. But then I also thought, you know, what, what would it look like to use a little bit of startup funds to launch our education project? You know, it's this thing that I'm really passionate about. I developed these ideas as I developed them. I got more and more passionate about them. Um, let's actually do this. But now, because I wasn't constrained by a certain funding mechanism, we could just do it however we wanted. Oh, yeah. So this is my assignment to myself in my <laughs> group retreat. You know, as everyone was brainstorming on their projects, I was thinking, what would it look like to do education research with no constraints? We have some money. What do we want to do? Um, and that basically landed on, like, what if we just launch a nationwide collaborative? Like, you know, why do this just myself? Um, let's just get a whole bunch of people, let's get diverse stakeholders, let's get psychologists, education researchers, people like me who are, you know, scientists, but really, really care about education. Let's get us all together and, uh, you know, really just have an authentic collaboration in order to try to do some exciting stuff that will help students. Um, and yeah, so that was that was a great failure. And, and, and I never, we, we wouldn't, be doing it the way that we are if I had gotten that first grant. And now we have this collaborative with over 40 people in it, and we just actually got a really great grant. We just got a half a million dollars from the NSF to continue Woo! that for five years. Woohoo! Yeah. And so we're going to keep growing and, and keep expanding and keep doing things. And, um, and yeah, we wouldn't. And a year from now, I get to go back and uh, apply for that prestigious education award. Again. <laughs> and so maybe yeah. this time it'll work out. And if it doesn't, that's, you know, there's tons of opportunities. So I think it's mm -hmm. just about, you know, not getting too tied to any one opportunity and just, you know, thinking about, well, okay, that, that you know, cast a broad net um, and you're going you're gonna to fail a lot, but you're going to succeed every once in a while. And then that's, you know, that's what's going to set your course forward. Wow, that's really cool. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> that was not anticipating. <laughs> That's also a really long answer. No. Or I people have to, like, go for, like, a long workout as they listen to this podcast. Honestly, like, I are just, like, they're pipetting, and they're just listening, and then they just be, like, laughing, and then the rest of the labs looks like, what is going on over there? <laughs> or a long lunch break. 
Nice long oh, lunch break. Yeah, I listen yeah. to your podcast as I work out. So I'd just be like, okay, I'm going to queue that up on one of my, like, you know, longer runs for the week. Oh, that's great. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, okay. With, with all the things that have been said, and they're all, like, phenomenal things, if there was one piece of advice, and this can be as detailed as yeah. you would like it to be, uh, that you could give regarding to how to approach failure, what would that be? That, oh, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. What would be my advice to approaching failure? I have like four pieces of advice, so I'm Do like it. trying All to four. mastermind. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm trying to mastermind something like some umbrella piece of advice that captures all of it. Um, and I think really the the thing that captures a lot of it is to focus, stay focused on your goals and not what people think about you, mm-hmm. um, because then that captures all sorts of things like being, you know, part of. There were a lot of reasons why I thought I could never be a professor, um, and some of that was just, you know, how I was like socialized and and all of those things. Um, but part of it is that I was just very afraid of failure and I, I had to have a hard conversation with myself where I said, you know, are you really not going to do this because you're afraid of what people will think about you if you fail at it? Mm-hmm. Um, because right, if you become a faculty member, um, if, if you fail in this career, it's like, it's really a public sort of, of failure. Um, and, and that was really terrifying to me. Um, and then actually another really great story about a time I failed that was like the best thing that ever happened in my career is that I almost did fail at this career on, on so many levels. And, um, and, and it was those moments that have driven me to do this job the way that I do now. And so those were, um, without those things, there would be no Jen on Twitter. There would be right. no talking about professional development. Mm-hmm. There would be none of this. Um, and so that's been really powerful. Um, but I'm wandering a little bit. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, not worrying about what people think about you, as hard as that is, because it matters what people think about you. But again, it's the more you worry about it, mm-hmm. the kind of worse it makes it. And, it. and if you kind of, to some extent, don't worry about what people think about you, then people will actually probably think more highly of you because you'll probably be more successful. And so so it picks up things like, you know, yeah, not, not shying away from big goals because you're afraid of what people will think if you fail because, you know, in the, in the end, we think people will judge us if we fail, but actually, you know, people aren't paying all that much attention. I think everyone's like walking around so worried about their own failures. They're not really worried about whether someone else is failing. And, and I, I think we actually are more apt to judge each other for like not trying mm-hmm. than we are for trying and failing. We actually kind of, in a lot of ways, look up to those people. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to think about being one of those people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the really other important thing it picks up is even just like what happens when you do fail, which is that um, you're just in a really practical context. You know, you have an experiment fail in lab, and if you're really afraid that you know, oh, my lab mates or my, my PI will think, oh, if my experiment failed, I'm not good as a scientist, and so I don't want to go tell them about that. Mm-hmm. Um, versus saying, okay, well, something failed. Um, maybe I made a mistake, or maybe it just doesn't work. But either way, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to worry more about being successful in this experiment. I'm keep my eye on the prize. Of, I want to be successful, and if someone wants to think that 
I'm not a good scientist because this experiment failed. Well, then that's their business, but whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay focused on, I just want to get this research to work. Um, then what you're going to do is you're going to go and seek out help. You know, you're going to go talk to your advisor. You're going to go talk to your lab mates. You're going to talk to maybe faculty in your department who work on research in that area and get more ideas. Maybe you're going to go on Twitter and post about it and try and get advice. Um, and at the end of the day, right, you know, what's going to get you to success in your research faster? You know, hiding it and not talking to anyone about it or going out and getting a lot of help and a right. lot of advice yeah. and, and using that in order to um, move things forward. Right. So, um, yeah. So, sweet. so I think it kind of captures a, a lot of things. And it, and it really kind of comes back to, again, that idea of if you're afraid of failure, um, you know, it isn't that failure inherently is good. Um, you know, failure is rough and it's usually kind of bad. Um, but if you approach it in a healthy way, mm -hmm. that's what um, makes you successful. Right. can make you successful. Right. I think one of the ways that has helped me, like, cope with failure, I suppose you could say, but more so just approach it, is uh, something that my PI had told me about chemicals, specifically, actually. Um, I was, I was um, working as an undergrad uh, with Alex and my PI, Jeff, and uh, there was mention of thallium that we needed to mm. use, and that was, I was terrified of that, because I was actually reading a book about um, like poisons that were used back in the day, and thallium yeah. was one of them, and reading how it affects the body was terrifying, and so oh, the yeah. first thing that I had said after the word thallium was uttered was, that's terrifying. And then, you know, my PI looked at me and he said, you know, I think, I think with chemicals, as with anything, we should not fear it, but respect it. Hmm. So, for example, uh, I should not fear failure, I should respect it, acknowledge it, but move on. Or how people think of me, I shouldn't fear it, but respect it, acknowledge it, and move on. And I think that's been a really great middle ground for me. I, and I'm not by any means claiming that I'm an expert on this, but it's definitely helped me reshape my perspective of all of these things that could very easily like plunge me into a downward spiral of imposter syndrome of I'm not cut out for this, I really shouldn't be here, let me just mm -hmm. like, there's the door, I'm going to go through it. Yeah. Uh, and so... Um, no, I really appreciate you saying that because that actually brings up something that I, I should have said earlier. And, and so I really appreciate that you challenged me on this because um, you're exactly right that you can't just make... I, I think it's really hard to just be like, okay, I need to be less afraid. Um, and I don't... I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I feel like, at least for me, that's not something I can do. But actually, another, going back to Alex Arnold, a quote of his that I love, and I'm not going to get it perfectly right, but he basically says, you know, you can't necessarily have less fear, but you can increase your comfort zone. Or you can't mm -hmm. decrease your fear, but you can increase your comfort zone. Right. And so I think that, you know, what you said, you know, respect it and deal with it and then kind of still go forward in the presence of something that scares you. Mm -hmm. I think that um, is much more at the heart of it than, than just saying like not being afraid right. of failure or not being afraid of anything. Um, it's, you know, every day of my life terrifies me. <laughs> like every day <laughs> yeah, I, I wake move, up and do things that terrify me. No, it, it all terrifies me. Like, um, <laughs> 
but like, you do I, it am anyway. I really doing this? Like, yeah. whoa, if I really think too hard about it, like, I'm not getting out of bed yeah, um, the same. in the That's morning. Yeah, and, but, and so it isn't about saying, like, okay, no, I just need to get over that. It's about saying, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that and, and then challenge myself to still go and do the things I want to do mm-hmm. in the presence of that fear. And, right. and I think that's really what courage is. Courage isn't like not feeling afraid. Courage is still just doing what you want to do or what you think needs to be done, even though you are afraid. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, kind of coming back to this growth mindset, I think that that really is something you can grow you know courage is kind of this muscle that you can build that you know you step out and do something that terrifies you and then you know you just kind of build that tolerance you you keep expanding Mm -hmm. that comfort zone of Mm -hmm. things that you you know how much fear you're willing to have you know and still get out there into the world versus you know hiding back under the covers again yeah and of course like speaking from my own, I can only speak on my own behalf, but I do know, like, so much easier in prose than in practice, like, it, this is something that will take time and will need to be worked at, uh, I know this is something that I have to work on, like, being courageous, like, like, starting off as a graduate student, I think if you have your own podcast, you're extremely courageous, oh my gosh, I'm just gonna stop you right there and give you credit for that, <laughs> well, I, it took me a lot of courage to, like, to, like, send you a message and be like, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? Like, I'm like, should yeah, I? You're like, courageous. When I, when I got the response, I was, like, almost crying in the Denny's I was in. It was so <laughs> great. Sadly, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, no. But, you're, yeah, I, I think you're, you're exactly, you're doing that. Having, you know, being out there on Twitter the way that you are and having mm-hmm. a podcast and, and doing all of these things, that's, that's a lot of stuff that's probably outside you know, if it's not outside terrifying. of your comfort zone it's outside of a lot of people's comfort it's zone terrifying <laughs> terrifying <laughs> so you're like, human I'm human yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we, we all don't talk about that a lot yeah. right you know we I mean, all we all walk around pretty terrified by most of it and, oh, yeah. and we need to all talk about that a lot more mm-hmm. I think the I, I think something that has helped me actually to like reduce fear is the more I talk about it the more that I give it a name, the more that I acknowledge it and say, yeah, I know you exist, but you know what? I'm just going to walk right past you. Like, lets me, like, every time I say it, it's just a step closer and past it. And, like, even that in itself is terrifying. It's just like, I got to do it anyway. Like, there's no other way out. Like, I'm just going just gonna to keep going. Uh, okay. Anyway. Yeah, no, I think that, that's so spot on. And that's, yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that's the healthy way to approach it. Oh, man. It. Yeah. Okay. Final and very important question. Yes. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? Oh, so my favorite cake flavor is Boston cream pie. That is Boston cream pie, folks. Yeah. Is that even a cake? It is. Is it? Yes. Because it's like a cake. It's like two layers of cake with some super yummy custard in the middle and then chocolate glaze over the top. And so I love it for a lot of reasons because I just loved Boston cream donuts when I was a kid. Um, And so then once I realized, oh, there's actually like a cake that is that the donuts are actually based on, um, it's a thing in Boston. and it's a cake, but also I don't 
like to do things the normal way. I like to always be different. So yeah, for sure. I love to have my favorite cake like be a pie, something called pie, but it's really a cake. And so I feel like, you know, I'm I'm a rule follower, but then I'm also a rule breaker. And so, like, so I want I want to like find a way to break the rule that I'm my favorite. <laughs> my favorite cake is something called pie. That's, so, so there. That's that is I think the epitome of chaotic good, but okay. Anyway, all right. Well, <laughs> that's that's really sweet. That's super sweet. Uh, Jen, thank you so much, so so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Like, this is this has been so much fun. I'm still in awe that you're on the show, and that I have finally the opportunity to meet you and talk with Likewise. you about failure and how we should embrace it. Um, to the listeners at home. Thank you for joining the chat about the F word. If you would like to follow the many mental health adventures of Dr. Jen, you can follow her on Twitter at Jen Heemstra. That is at J-E-N-H-E-E-M-S-T-R-A. If you would like to follow her biomolecular adventures, be sure to check out her website, uh, heemstralab.com. That is H-E-E-M-S-T-R-A-L-A-B dot C-O-M. And... If you are subscribed to the Chemical and Engineering News magazine, she also writes a column called Office Hours, so definitely keep an eye out for that as well. I know. I get super excited every time it shows up in a new issue. So, also, uh, of course, you can uh, follow me on Twitter uh, and be a part of the Cake Nation if you are not already partaking in the hype. Follow me on Twitter at ChemistryCake. And I will never get tired of saying this. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to serve as the Cake Nation's designated hype woman. This is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify your village. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off. <laughs>